imagine that? We've been for the past, I don't know, two and a half years. Luke chapter 22. And you've heard, you've heard the phrase or you've heard the statement, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. I think the idea is, or the admonition, the warning there is, don't enter into something that you are unprepared to enter into. Don't come with inadequate resources. Don't come with um, thinking you are going to be well protected in a serious battle when you are completely overmatched and um, underwhelming. And I think that's going to be an important phrase. I don't know if it's important. It's just what kept coming to my mind as I'm studying this passage of text. Sometimes a phrase gets stuck in my head and I can't shake it. So it's like, okay, I'm going to use it somehow. Maybe the Lord's speaking to me or maybe it's just my own weirdness. But don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Because um, we all need to engage. When we are engaged in battle, we need to make sure that we have the proper and necessary weapon. And oftentimes, the necessary and proper weapon in our lives is prayer. And the problem that we're going to see today, or one of the problems, is that the, the disciples brought a sword to a prayer fight. And that was wholly and completely inadequate. In fact, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, he tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And so the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not natural. And the disciples brought a sword to a prayer fight. They should have brought prayer and they would have been well prepared for the battle that they are engaging. So just a little bit of context here as we uh, get ourselves ready to read the text. Remember, um, Jesus has informed his disciples He's informed the disciples that they are about to engage, they are about to undergo an imminent satanic attack. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you all, that is the entire group, all of the 11 disciples. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you all like wheat. In other words, there is going to come a violent shaking. A violent shake. He sought to destroy all of you. But you, Peter, I've prayed for you. Peter, you're the leader. I've prayed for you. And after you are restored, I want you to strengthen your brothers. There's going to come a satanic attack that is going to shake you violently. I think Jesus is um, understanding that Peter and the disciples are going to fall. But after they fall, Peter is going to be the one who is restored and he is then to restore his brother. So there is this imminent satanic attack that is about to befall the disciples. Jesus has warned them of that. And he's also said, but I've prayed for you. That is my weapon of choice against this attack. There is an attack coming and the proper weapon to deflect this attack or to have some some benefit is it is my prayer that Jesus is our great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. And so it reminds us that the intercessory prayer ministry of Christ for us is a powerful force. Christ continues to um, be our great high priest seated at the right hand of Father, ever living to make intercession for us. 
And as we mentioned last week, we are in good hands. We can take comfort in the fact that when we are in the valley of the shadow of death, we have a great high priest interceding on our behalf. And so that just brings us a little bit of uh, background. Let's go ahead and read our text today um, as we're going to see. So let's go ahead and read our text today. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 53. Listen to God's holy and inerrant word. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas One of the twelve was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out? as against a robber with swords and clubs. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And this ends the reading of God's holy word. So we begin with this this central theme of prayer. One of the things I want you to do is note the outline. or Note the outline that, that, that Jesus gives us. You will see that in verse 40, this whole thing begins with an admonition that Jesus gives to his disciples. Pray. Why? That you may not enter into temptation. Then you will see that in verse 46, the end of this section, what does Jesus say? The exact same thing. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. In the middle of that, Jesus prays. So we have this, these brackets, if you will, that Jesus is telling his disciples, Pray that you may not enter in temptation. In the middle of that, we see Jesus praying. There seems to be some sort of connection or some sort of relationship between prayer and overcoming temptation. And it is through prayer. Prayer, by the way, is the central theme of this section. It is mentioned numerous times in the few verses that we have, but it is through prayer, I'm going to suggest that it is through prayer that Jesus gains victory over the temptation, and it is because of lack of prayer that leaves the disciples vulnerable. And so Jesus prays, and he successfully navigates the valley of the shadow of death. The disciples, in, in contrast, sleep and end up dependent upon an ineffective weapon. Does that make sense? So Jesus prays, that's his weapon of choice, and he ends up 
victorious in the battle. The disciples forego prayer. They sleep. And what they end up doing is they also have a weapon, but it's a completely ineffective weapon to engage and to have victory in the battle that they are in. So that's kind of our, that's kind of the general outline as Jesus has gone up to the, the Mount of Olives. And now Jesus begins with his instruction. He instructs his disciples and he says this, as we've said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And you should note that the idea here is be always praying, be in regular prayer, be praying. Be constantly praying. In other words, Satan is, the desire of Satan is to lead them into defection. We saw that last week. The goal was that the disciples would defect. He's already got one. Judas, the son of perdition, has defected. The idea here is to get the rest of the eleven to permanently and ultimately defect from their loyalty to Christ. Satan is going to lead them into this temptation. Their defense against this temptation is prayer. I think sometimes we fail to realize the effectiveness of prayer as a weapon when we are engaged in battle. One of the things we should mention about prayer right at the outset is that prayer is perhaps the one of the ultimate expressions of faith. Prayer expresses dependence on God. When we pray, we are saying, God, I cannot do this thing. I got nothing. Perhaps it's even, Lord, I've tried all my stuff and it didn't work. Sometimes prayer is our last result, but it is our last resort, which is unfortunate. But always prayer is an acknowledgement that I don't got this. I'm not in control. I don't have power. I don't have authority. I don't have wisdom. I don't have intellect. I don't have any. I need you, God, to do for me what I cannot do. In many ways, prayer is one of the ultimate expressions of faith. I would just hope that we often pray before um, the crisis. Like Jesus is doing here. He is asking, he is calling the disciples to pray. Not because they're engaged in battle yet, but the battle is about to come. The enemy is at is right there at the door. You need to be praying. I've already told you, Satan has granted, has, has wanted permission to sift you like wheat. He wants to shake you violently. He is going to shake you violently. The thing that's going to get you through this shaking is prayer. So be praying. You see, faithfulness in the midst of temptation to reject Christ is prayerful dependence upon God. And as we look at we we contrast this with verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to, that he might have you, that he might sift you like wheat. And then Peter goes, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and die with you. I want you to understand that effectiveness in this spiritual battle is not sheer willpower. It is dependence upon a God who is stronger than your enemy, because you are not. Willpower alone, desire alone, will not be effective. Be praying that you will not enter into temptation. And then Jesus, what does Jesus do after encouraging and and exhorting the eleven to pray? Jesus, guess what he does? He prays. 
And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed. The thing that kind of jumps out at me from this little, this little phrase is that Jesus knelt down and prayed. It's interesting because for you and I, kneeling down to pray may not seem all that odd, but in Jesus' day, people stood to prayer. Stood to pray. Um, not that they didn't kneel, but prayer, but standing was the general posture in prayer. Certainly people kneeled, certainly people sprawled out and laid on their face and prayed, but this would suggest to me something very intense because he is falling down on his knees. There are many, I'm not here to argue what is the best posture of prayer, I'm just saying that this jumps out at me. One of the things I find, this is way off track, but that's okay. One of the things I find interesting that there are many postures of prayer listed in the Bible. The one I don't find is sitting. Um, And we often sit to pray. Which is why a lot of times I ask you, stand to pray. Um, That's deliberate. Um, I'm not legalistic about it because we do sit and pray, but um, stand and pray. Why? Um, Because we don't ever see people sitting and praying. We see them sprawled out on the ground, face down. We see them kneeling as in here. We see them standing. We see a number of different postures here. Jesus is kneeling to pray. It suggests some intensity. And what does Jesus pray? What is his request? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Wow. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. So I guess our first question is, what cup is it that Jesus is referring to? I guess our couple of possibilities would be the cup in the Passover. That doesn't make any sense. But if you look to the Old Testament, you will see that the cup of God is frequently, if not always, referring to the cup of God's wrath. And I gave you a few references. Um, I won't turn there. Psalm 11, 6, Psalm 75, 8, 9, Isaiah, Jeremiah. The cup of God's wrath. Father, if you're willing, let your wrath pass by me. This is a wrath against sin. God is about to pour out his wrath against sin upon his holy, sinless son. You're saying, well, if he's sinless, then why is wrath being poured out on him? It's the wrath due you and me. It's the wrath that you and I. See, when God forgave you of your sins, if you are a Christian here today and you are forgiven by God, if you have repented of your sins and called upon the name of the Lord, believed in your heart that that God raised him from the dead and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, God has saved you. Do not think that he overlooked your sin. The wrath of God was poured out for your sin. God's wrath is always poured out on sin. It just was not poured out on you. It was poured out upon His beloved Son and Jesus say, right now, right now, I can go around and, and, and name names. John. John's sin is going to be poured out upon me. If it's possible, let John's sin pass from me. But no, there's no other way to forgive Pastor John of his sins than the full brunt of my wrath for his sins falling upon you, Jesus. And I can go around Charlie and Scott and Steve and Judy and Chris and Tina and, and 
all of you. The wrath of God for your sins is going to fall upon Jesus because he does not blink at sin. Sin needs to be paid for and it's going to be paid for at the cross. Father, is there another way? Let your wrath for John's sin pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is going to bear that wrath. If there is some other way, if there's another way that will not alter your plan, but can remove the cup, then let's do that plan. This is why we know Jesus is the only way, because he prays to the Father. If there's another way, and guess what? There was not another way. Couldn't you just forget about it? Couldn't you just kind of let it go? No. My wrath is poured out against sin. And it's going to be poured out on the individual who commits it, or it's going to be poured out upon my son. There is no other way. If you are not in Christ, you will bear the wrath of God for your sin by yourself. It is an eternal punishment. You will never exhaust God's wrath. You will spend eternity in hell bearing the wrath of God against sin. Or, you can say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Would Jesus take my sin and bear it himself? Would he take that wrath? And Jesus said, yep, I will gladly take the wrath of God on your behalf. If there's another way. And then he says, but not my will, but yours be done. This is an amazing truth. Jesus desired one thing over the escape from the wrath of God, and that was the will of God. He is about to face the wrath of God for my sin and for your sin. And he wants nothing more to escape having to bear God's wrath for our sins. The only thing he desired greater than escaping the wrath of God was doing the will of God. But not my will, but yours be done. I will pray. I'm about to enter. I'm going to be utterly and completely dependent upon you, Father. I need you to walk with me through this valley of the shadow of death because I'm about to endure what no man... Think about this, folks. Even the sinner who dies in their sin will bear their, the wrath of God for their sin. Christ is about to bear the wrath of God for all of our sins. I don't know how intense that is. I don't know how to measure that. I don't know how to communicate it. But not, your, my, not my will, but yours be done, Holy Father. I would rather drink the cup of your wrath than, and be in your will than escape. He understands that the will of God is perfect. And I want you to understand that God's will is perfect. It's not always smooth and it's not always easy. Paul tells us that this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Sometimes we walk the hard path. And I know that won't sell many books and it won't fill a convention hall, but God will have us walk the hard path. Because this momentary light affliction is doing what? It is creating in us an eternal weight of glory. He is fitting us for heaven. And so he may have you on the hard path. Certainly he has his own son on the hard path. And I will tell you this, that God's will is perfect. Though it's not always easy and it's not always smooth, but I will guarantee this, it will require prayer to accomplish it. 
And I pray that we would be in a place like this. Lord, this is what I desire, but not your... What I desire more than anything is to do your will, including walk this difficult path. If this is where your path takes me, if it takes me through this rocky path, then I will do that. And I will depend and lean upon you. So not your will, but mine be done. I find it really interesting that now angels come and strengthen him. To faithfully carry out all that God's will requires, Jesus is going to need heavenly strengthening. This is not the first time we've seen angels in the book of Luke. Of course, we see angels at the birth of of Jesus, but we also see Jesus, we also see angels in the desolate desert during his temptation, and now we see him in the angels strengthening him in the desolate garden. The garden may be flourishing, but it is desolate because the powers of darkness are about to come full force upon our Lord and Savior. And now he is praying and heaven comes aside, comes alongside to strengthen and keep him. Angelic presence was common in the life of Christ. I want you to know that we can trust God to sustain us for his purposes. God has called us to do something. We are going to have to depend upon him, but I want you to know that you will not be alone. Heaven will strengthen us to, to complete the task that God has called us to do. And then, after this angelic strengthening, what does Jesus do? He keeps praying. And you will notice, in being in agony, what does he do? He prays more earnestly. In agony, Jesus persists in prayer. This is a battle, folks. This is a battle. Jesus is engaged in war. I want you to understand that agony is no excuse for prayerlessness. Actually, agony should be motivation. The difficulty of the situation is not a cause for us to check out. Sometimes the, the battle's raging around us. It gets hard and things are difficult. We just say, oh, I just need to check out for a while. No, pray more. Pray more. You go, well, that's easy. I got nothing left in me. I can't pray anymore. I don't have the words to say. I don't have the strength to do it. I got nothing. And you say pray more. I want to encourage you with the text that we read earlier in the book of Romans. This is just one of the most amazing passages. Charlie's teaching on Romans on Wednesdays. I would encourage you to come. It's been such a great blessing. And I probably missed this section. I wasn't there last week. Did I miss this? Darn Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought to. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. I'm going to stop there. Look at this. I got nothing. I'm in too much agony. The battle's too deep. I got no words. I got nothing. I don't have strength. I can't do anything good. Because you're not done yet. Because you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit helps us. Where does He help us? In our weakness. When I got nothing, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. And what is our weakness? I don't even know what to pray for. I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray for. All I know is I'm too weak to do anything. Great. The Holy Spirit helps us in that situation. And He prays 
for us with groanings too deep for words. I don't have words. The Holy Spirit brings your requests that you cannot communicate. He brings your desires that you cannot verbalize. He takes those and brings those to the throne of grace. But it's even better than that. Because he knows the will of God and he prays in accordance to the will of God. You're going, I don't know the will of God. I don't know my need. I don't know anything. I don't have the strength to do anything. And the Holy Spirit comes and does what you can't do and he does it perfectly in accordance with the will of God. And we know that if you ask anything in accordance to the will of God, it will be done. And you have the Holy Spirit doing for you that you cannot do. Jesus in agony is praying and we sometimes check out when the agony, when the pressure gets in the battle rages too hard. Now, that's not the time to check out. It's just to become more dependent upon the Spirit of God who will pray according to the will of God when you can't. That's just awesome. This prayer is necessary. Jesus knows that this is the beginning of the battle. The battle is just... It's just starting. And he's sweating like drops of blood. And, and I know there's all sorts of there's medical things that say that you can stress so bad that you actually sweat blood. Luke says like drops of blood. I don't know if this is actually blood or if it's just like drops of blood. But it is intense prayer. And he's sweating. I'm just, I'm thinking... This morning I was thinking as I was going over this, this is Passover, this is springtime. He's up on the mountain at night. It's cool. And he's sweating profusely. This is battle. He is engaged in battle. He is sweating profusely. Perhaps even to the extent that he's bleeding. And then once again, He arises from prayer. He goes to the disciples. And are they sweating in prayer? Are they engaged in battle? They're sleeping. And he admonishes disciples. Jesus is preparing for this satanic onslaught and it's contrasted quite vividly with the disciples' complete lack of urgency. It says that they were sleeping from sorrow and it doesn't explain the sorrow. Perhaps the sorrow that they have learned of Jude. By now they know of Judas's betrayal. Peter seems to know of the reality of both prison and death for Christ. Maybe that's part of the sorrow. But sorrow should be a catalyst to prayer. I know sometimes we're so weary and we're so overcome and sleep provides a welcome relief from difficult situations, but that may not be the time. There's a time for everything under heaven and there is a time for sleep, but this is not the time for sleep. Jesus says you need to be praying to overcome temptation. Now is the time for prayer. It is not the time for sleep. And so, I'll just quickly summarize this section. I don't think we can get a greater contrast between Jesus and the disciples. Both of them are aware of future events. Jesus knows the cross looms. The disciples at this time know that Bad things are about to happen. And Jesus has even told them, Satan has desired to, to shake you violently. And Peter, you're going to fall away from me. We're not going to even get done with this night before you deny me three times. Y'all are going to scatter. This is the time for prayer. The contrast could not be greater. They both know that a battle is waging 
is, a, is about to erupt, if it hasn't already been engaged. Jesus depends on the Father and the disciples depend on sleep. One is going to be victorious in the battle. The others will not do so well. Jesus, who depends upon the Father in prayer, engages the battle and emerges victorious. The disciples, who depend upon sleep, end up woefully unprepared and they end up bringing a sword, a sword to a prayer fight and they realize that's just not going to do it. So I hope we've been encouraged and maybe admonished or exhorted in the necessity and the importance of prayer. It is dependency upon the Father and it is necessary. And the Spirit of God will prompt you when the Spirit of God is prompting you to pray. Pray. That's not the time for sleep. Pray. I believe that this was the means by which the disciples would have escaped or at least been victorious in the temptation. We talked about that in Bible study this morning. Doesn't God provide an escape hatch when we're in, in temptation? Doesn't God provide a way out? The scripture says that God provides a way out. He does. I think this was their way out. But this was the escape hatch. The escape hatch presented itself prior to the being engaged in the battle. Sometimes we think, well, when the battle gets really bad, that's when the escape hatch will open and there will be a way out. I think in this one here, the escape hatch, the way out, occurred prior to battle. And had they prayed, perhaps they would have been victorious. So we see this picture in the garden. It is sometimes we think of gardens as a place of, of tranquility and, and, and beauty, and they can be, but this was a battleground. It was one of the first battlegrounds when we get to the... Um, the passion narrative that uh, the last few days of Christ's life. This beautiful garden becomes a battleground. And now we see enemies approaching. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And now we're going to see that swords are a poor choice of weapon. And Judas um, is introduced to us. And, and notice how, Ju- how Luke refers to Judas. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve. I looked up a number of passages of the way that Judas is referred to after his betrayal. And all of the gospel writers um, are very gracious in how they refer to Judas. And I was struck by that. That they don't express contempt for Judas. They don't excuse him, but they don't express contempt for him either. I mean, here's probably one of the most sorry and despicable human beings who has ever lived. Nobody names their kid Judas. Nobody. I think that's a testimony to the reputation of this man, and yet the gospel writers still say he's one of the twelve. They don't say that despicable worm of a human being. 
don't excuse him, but they speak, they speak graciously towards him. I'll come back to that in a bit. And, and I note this other contrast that he's leading the enemies of Christ. And I just thought that was so interesting because our text began with, Jesus, with the disciples following Jesus up the mountain. And now we have Judas leading the enemies of Christ up the mountain. Judas was a follower of Christ. And now he's a leader of those who are going to murder Christ. What a sad fall. What a horrible descent from being a follower of Christ to a leader of enemies of Christ. And he comes and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. What hypocrisy. The kiss was a kiss of friendship. And so outwardly he indicates friendship, but his heart is murderous. And Jesus calls him out on his vile behavior. Once again, very gracious, but Jesus is very firm. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? See, there will always be those who feign friendship for Jesus, yet intend, whose intent is murder. Jesus sees this. Jesus calls him out. Listen, stop being a hypocrite. Just do what you came to do. I think one of the other... Well, I think when Jesus was getting ready to be, or Judas was getting ready to betray Jesus, Jesus said, go what you need to do. Do the thing you need to do. Now do it. Don't feign friendship. Do what you need to do. You came here to murder me. Get it done. Don't soften it or sweeten it with a kiss of friendship. You're an enemy of the cross. Don't pretend to be something else. The disciples, I don't know, kind of bumbling, if you will, humorous. And when they who were around him, the disciples saw what would follow, they said, Lord, should we strike with a sword? Now they're ready to fight. We're all rested up. We've had a good night's sleep. We're ready to go. We got a sword. I think they may even have two based on last week's text. We got a sword. We're ready to fight. And Jesus is like, ah, you brought a sword to a prayer fight. It ain't going to work. The time for fighting would, was spent sleeping, and now they are completely unprepared. And I think too often times we are read in, ready to engage in a natural fight against a physical, a physical enemy with carnal weapons while sleeping through the real battle. If there's a natural enemy or a natural force or something, we, we will fight it with natural means, but oftentimes our battle, folks, more often than not, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against principalities and powers and rulers and high places, and the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. No sword or no handgun or semi-automatic rifle or whatever tank, bazooka, nuclear weapon is going to destroy the spiritual enemy. However, prayer is the proper weapon. So should we fight? And I like to, should they ask, should we fight? Should we strike with the sword? And then they don't even wait for Jesus to answer. They just, one of the guys, I think it's Peter, lops off the ear of the assistant to the high priest. Should we fight? You know, I guess it's 
lop off an ear now, ask questions later, something like that. Shoot first, ask questions later. What does Jesus do? He restores the ear. And once again, we see this Jesus engaging with his enemies. He's now extending God's mercy to, the one who, to the somebody who came to arrest him and kill him. Oh, here, let me fix that for you. I'm like, that serves you right. He, he, his ear is restored. Perhaps, I don't want to be too metaphorical in my message, but perhaps he restores the ear so that he might be able to hear the words of Christ. And so here Jesus is treating an enemy with respect, and even the gospel writers are treating Judas graciously. I guess perhaps implicitly hidden in all of this is an admonition that even here we are to love our enemies. Even at this point, love your enemies. And then Jesus replies, he says, no more than, listen, put your swords away. We're not here to engage in battle. The battle's already been engaged. Prayer is our weapon. The sword isn't going to, the sword isn't going to do you any good. Right? There's 12 of us, Jesus and the 11, and there's a whole bunch of them. They outnumber us. They will win us in a physical battle. They will win in a physical battle. In a carnal, natural battle, we don't stand a chance. Put your sword away. This isn't a natural physical battle. This is a spiritual battle. You should have been you should have been wielding the sword in prayer. So enough of this. No more of this. And he touched the ear, touched the man's ear, healed him, and then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple who had come out against him, Have you come out against a robber? Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour, the power of dark and the power of darkness. So you came to me in darkness. You fear the people. You would not come to me and arrest me in the light. You would not do your wicked deeds in the light of day. So you come to me in a remote place in the dark. That's physical, but metaphorically, or certainly symbolically, the idea here is this is the hour of darkness. Not just the physical darkness at nighttime, but it is the time where cosmic darkness is going to rule. So he rebukes the Jewish leaders. He calls them hypocrites. You fear people, so you hide your actions in the darkness. But this is the hour of darkness. And I think we should note something about this phrase, the hour of darkness. Note note that it's an hour, and oftentimes when the Bible speaks of an hour, it is speaking, obviously this is not a literal hour. It is a brief, temporary, but limited time. This is the hour of darkness. There is a time where darkness is going to have its reign. And it's going to be unlimited and unhindered. But it's an hour. Just an hour. It's for a brief, predetermined amount of time. It does not last forever. It is temporary. It is short-lived. And I want to encourage us, sometimes darkness prevails briefly. Even after intense prayer, Jesus has prayed. And he's prayed intensely. He's prayed for the will of the Father, and darkness is going to prevail. Even after intense prayer, darkness is going to prevail. But I want you to know this. God is working out his plan. It's an hour. It's only an hour. And I guess I'll 
take from a very famous sermon. This is your hour. It is the power of darkness, but it's only an hour. See, it's only Friday. Only Friday. Sunday's coming. And I'll conclude then with this. Prayer is a much more powerful weapon than we may think. Much more powerful weapon. Engage it often. We should note that prayer does not always avert the darkness, but prayer will strengthen us through the darkness. I'm always struck by Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. First of all, I walk through the valley of shadow of death. I don't die in the valley of shadow of death. I get through it. And God is with me in the valley of the shadow of death. He does not take me around the valley of the shadow of death. He takes me right on through it and He's with me and I get through it. And prayer is one of the means by which we will get through that valley of darkness. It is one of the means by which this we can consider our afflictions momentary and light. And He strengthens us through it and He does not leave you alone in the valley. And Perhaps uh, another good suggestion or thought is that prayer is best engaged prior to battle. Sometimes we wait till things get bad and then we pray. Meanwhile, God has already prompted us before the battle came, but we slept. Or watched the game, played video games, or worked in the yard, or done whatever. We should have been on our knees in prayer because God has already prompted us. God sees tomorrow. And he knows the battle that's coming tomorrow and he's prompting you to pray today because of the battle tomorrow. You think tomorrow is just going to be Monday. So, prayer is a powerful weapon. Prayer strengthens us to walk through the darkness and prayer is best engaged prior to battle. Let's stand.